بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن وله Welcome everybody to today's stream uh, in which we're going to talk about one of the greatest figures in Islamic history he is a a, a, a person who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, has blessed as one of the great imams on the matter of Tazkiyat al-Nafs, also known as As-Suluk wa Tasawwuf. And that is the great Abdul Qadir al-Jailani. And we may, inshallah, um, we will be speaking about his, his da'wah, the way he did things, and we have a lot of sayings of his. And you can read one of the best biographies, 20-page biography from this book, Saviors of Islamic Spirit, okay, Saviors of Islamic Spirit, from MeccaBooks.com, and you type in promo code Safina, and you'll get a discount, okay, Saviors of Islamic Spirit with the uh, promo code of Safina, so apparently we've got our Germany and Belgium flags messed up, yes, so Sophia French speaker living in Germany. Okay. Today we are talking about his name. He is considered the king of the awliya. There's no doubt about that. He's considered the sultan of the awliya. That's his nickname that has grown. And in the ummah, they, this is what they refer to him as sultanul awliya. And let's go and um, begin with a word from our sponsors. We already mentioned Mecca Books. This is where you're going to get that book with promo code Safina. You also want to take professors one-to-one because... There are SAT courses, there are ACT courses, there are whatever you guys call it in England, O-level, A-level, all these um, exams that people need to take. The nursing exam, all these types of exams that people need to take, you can take these all and get tutoring at professors1to1.com. Right. And then lastly, you guys are all of, involved in this through patreon.com. Right. Patreon.com backslash Safina Society is how all of you uh, would be uh, involved with this program and this live stream. So today, on our topic today, there are two aspects of ilm as-suluk. Ilm as-suluk. Ilm al-tasawwuf. nafs There's two aspects. There's the theoretical aspect, and then there's the, the spiritual path, what's known as a spiritual path. And they're different, Okay. They're different because one is, it's like the, the road map, but the other is people who have trodden this map, uh, this, this road, and are showing you how to do it, okay? They've come onto this road and they're showing you, you know, how it's done. And that's a big difference, right? That's the big difference between the two. Abdul Qadir Jailani has a hand in both, but mainly... He has, he's, he's showing you, he's demonstrating how it's done. And what's the difference? Those who author the theory, what do they leave for us? They leave for us books. They leave for us the books. Those who demonstrate how it's done, what do they leave for us? Followers. And they leave a senate. And Abdul Qadir al-Jailani, he's one of the oldest of the shiuch. Ahmad al-Rifai is before him. And he has uh, a senad of shiuch all the way down to our times. Yes, there are ghulat 
who call themselves Qadiriyah and they're not Qadiriyah at all. That's true. And just like Shadhiliyah, there are people who call themselves Shadhiliyah and we would say that there are Zghulat, there's Ghulu and there's Bid'a in what they do. So not just calling yourself a name means nothing, to be quite honest with you. If I call myself the rich, the millionaire, the billionaire, if I just start calling myself Shadi al-Masih the billionaire, does that make me a billionaire, <laughs> right? If I call myself uh, the president, does that make me the president? So names mean nothing. Haqaiq is what's, what matters. How many people call themselves Muslim? And would they be described as representatives of the Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa I don't think so. ISIS called themselves Mujahideen. Are they Mujahideen? Okay. These people are far off from the likes of you know, those who, who, who fought the Mongols and those who fought the Crusaders. They're far off from them. So, so calling themselves one thing, it means to me nothing. What matters is what's called the Madmoon. The Madmoon is the content of what you're saying. And your Senate. Of course, we, we have a concept of a Senate. Right, so nobody could come and say, I'm Al-Hanbali. Type, where's your Senate? If you're a master of the Hanbali Madhab, wouldn't other masters of the Hanbali Madhab older than you have confirmed you? Okay. You can't just go read the books and say, and give yourself a degree. Can I go read medical books and give myself a degree? I'm doctor. So-and-so. No, no, you're not. You're only doctor so-and-so. When other doctors older than you stamp you and confirm you as a doctor. You see how it works? Okay, this is how it works. That's what's called the Sanad al-Muttasr, the connected chain. So it's the chain, but it's also the madmoon, the content. Right? And there are many people who could easily go get themselves a Sanad, hang around a sheikh for a little bit, impress him with something, and then go innovate later. It happens all the time. So he's rejected. And sometimes these shiyukh, if they learn about the misdeeds of their followers, they retract the Sanad. It happens. Okay? I'm sure I can get you examples of people who... I've seen examples of a guy in England. He went and he studied with some shiuch in a sham. He only spent a, like a couple summers with them, right? A couple, maybe a year or two. They issued him a senate because he attended the classes. He understands. They see that he understands. They gave him a senate. He came back. He started off well. He started going a little bit crazy because the fitna of the age are new every decade now, right? It's not like the old days where there's fitna. It's been the same fitna for like 20 years or 200 years and the sheikh t- teaches you how to deal with it and you're good to go. No, in our time, the new technology comes in with a new fitna. A new technology comes in with a new, another new fitna. Constant new fitna and fitna and fitna and they mess with people's heads and people go astray. So he went astray. The shiuch, the students, the, the colleagues of this person, they wrote letters to the shiuch in Asham, and they're saying he's now doing such and such. They wrote him a letter. They wrote him a response. They said, tell him that if these claims are true, then stop doing what you're doing. Well, he refused. They ratted him out again to his shiuch. They reported him, essentially. The sheikh withdrew the senate and made a public statement, I withdraw my senate from this person. Even so much so, there was one goofball who's uh, not even worse, he's worse than a goofball, he's a complete astray type of person. He went around Al-Maghrib, he went on a tour of Al-Maghrib Al-Arabi, taking pictures with Maliki scholars, and the Maliki smiles at him, and the man says something nice about him, okay, 
and the sheikh then uh, uh, it's as if he's sponsoring him well then some of these shiuk like al-kittani said I came to learn of his deviant opinions on such and such you know this person who comes for pictures and we smile and say nice things I've come to learn and so I retract all my positive statements I do not support this person I'm against this person so a sanad al-muttasil can be played with right? and that's why you have to really have both the sanad and the madmoon all right. When someone is a leader in spiritual matters and he's claiming that he could be a murshid for somebody, guide you to nearness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to rida Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You're looking at the madmoon being that is what he's saying in, in line with the words of the fuqaha and the sharia and the aqidah. And are his disciples, his students, are they benefiting from this? And does he have a senate? Okay, so that's what you're looking at. Al-Madmoon was Senate. Now, Abdul Qadir al-Jailani is somebody who did not leave us a lot of books. He, he was not a famous author of books, although he did write books. But he's not known for his books. He's known for demonstrating how this is done and having murids and disciples all the way down. Now, Sayyidina Abdul, uh, Imam al-Ghazali is the exact opposite. Where you don't walk, go around the Ummah and say, uh, Al-Jama'a al-Ghazali or Tariq al-Ghazali. You don't find it. But what you find is his books. So he's an imam who wrote on the theory of the subject matter more so than on the uh, uh, having murids and disciples. Now, the origin of Abdul Qadir al-Jilani is the first thing we're going to talk about. All of the scholars, if you notice, they usually have, a lot of them, have a very blessed origin. Okay? And it's not just, it could be that someone had a vision about him. Okay? Like the great scholar Uthman Danfodio was a mujahid and he set up a khilafah, the Sokoto Caliphate in Nigeria in the 1700s, if I'm not mistaken. Late 1700s. At the time of Shah Waliullah in India, there was in Nigeria the mujaddid and the mujahid and the khalifa of the Muslims of that area, Uthman Danfodio. Well, it was his grandmother or somebody who saw a vision for him, right? And the word spread in the family that this is going to be a special boy. That's an example. The, in, in our times, the, who died, um, uh, maybe, I think in 1996, Muhammad Mutawali al-Sha'rawi, his father saw for him a vision of a bird's chirp singing at the top of a mimbar, okay? Uh, sorry, of a, min, a minaret top of a minaret, a bird chirping and singing loudly. So his brother interpreted it for him. He said, you're going to have a son who is going to be a very, his words, his preaching is going to spread far and wide. And it happened. Yep. But not, it's not always about visions. Sometimes the, the good beginning is about hardships. So sometimes it's these visions, but sometimes hardships. Imam al-Bukhari went blind and his dad died very early on in his life two calamities you lose your dad you lose your eyes and his mother was in such a hardship it was just unbelievable the hardship that she was in and she prayed and prayed and prayed for him, her son to receive his eyesight back until he did receive his eyesight back and then she devoted him to the shiuch for his entire life he's going to live with the shiuch and he became what he became well with Abdul Qadir Jilani it was something quite similar 
His dad died very early on in his life, so he's an orphan. He was from Persia, which is right, he was from like what we would call a suburb of Tehran. That's where he was from, what we would consider today a suburb of Tehran. That's where he was from. But he was of mixed Arab and Persian descent, and he was the 13th descendant from Sayyidina al-Husayn. Sayyidina al-Husayn. Right? And if I'm not mistaken, I think there was also from Sayyidina al-Hasan, from his mother's side, and Hussein from his father's side. Let me double check. Okay. Yes, he was a descendant of al-Hasan ibn Ali, not al-Husayn. Even though Persians tended to be mainly descendants of Sayyidina al-Husayn, but he was a descendant of Sayyidina al-Hasan. But he was mixed Persian and Arab descent, but he lived in Persia. Persian was his first language, and he learned Arabic. Now, his father died, but he had a type of birth that was almost miraculous in the sense that his mother had thought that she was finished childbearing, and she had him when she least expected it. She was, thought she was done with life, done with children, but she had him when in the month of Ramadan. He was born in the month of Ramadan. And then she sent him off at the tender age of about 11 or 12 or 13 to the great city of Baghdad so he could seek knowledge. And she gave him eight gold coins to live off of. And she sent him trusting in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because at that time, when you send someone off, they're on their own. And the famous story of his beginning is that a group of thieves, a group of thieves, surrounded him, his, his caravan, and he was with other people, and they took over. And they said, everyone empty your pockets, and this is, it's a, it's, it's, it's a shakedown. He emptied his pockets, gave him eight gold coins. And the thief said, yeah, and he, it's almost like this is too easy, right? It's like, this is too easy. So the thief, the head thief told him, what are you doing? And he's almost teaching you, He's, the, the head thief is almost saying, like, we wanted a little bit of a cat and mouse chase. <laughs> you just gave up too, too easily. He said, well, son, you, you don't do this. This is not what you do. You don't just give away your money like this. So even the thieves back in the old day, they had some kind of, like, decency. So he said, when my mother dropped me off to the caravan, she said, I give you one wasiya, piece of counsel, and that is never tell a lie. Okay. Do not ever tell a lie. That's my only piece of counsel to you. And he said, when you all ask what money do I have, I, I remembered I have to keep my word to my mother is more important than my money. Now, keep in mind something. Children, they have no value for money. They don't care about money. They haven't lived yet to see what money does to people. It elevates people. It lowers people. Okay, Or that's how we perceive things to be. People are truly elevated or lowered by 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 their actions and their dignity but at the same time in our perception we perceive money to elevate and lower to buy and to 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 to, to ward off harms that's what we perceive so children don't know this because they haven't lived yet so we readily gave away the eight, eight, eight dinars the dinar at the time of the prophet so i said and this is way after so i don't know if it's the time but i'm just giving you this piece of information just keep it in the back of your mind the dinar at the time of the prophet was 4.25 grams of gold okay so when we talk about a dinar we may talk about it in the context of dia 
The dinar of a person, the whole bo- the value of a person is 1,000 dinars, which is 4,250 grams of gold. That's the value of the case that you're given to live in this world on. This case is not the value of a person. You can't put a value to a soul. The value of your body, okay, is 4.25, uh, 4,250 grams of gold. So calculate that. In today's calculation, it's $250,000. Right. That's, that's our law. And why is that important? Because, because we, have a, we, we, we pin that down, lawsuits can't go crazy now. Right? You can't have a lawsuit, $5 million, because of what you did to my finger. $5 million because you scarred my face. No. And then the eye is worth half of that, 125 grand. Second eye, another 125 grand. All right. Private parts, 125, uh, uh, full body. You mess with someone's private parts, full body. In injury of the head, they're all different. The worst is the one that breaks the skull and reaches the brain. It doesn't mean you have become brain damaged, but that bad, that's how bad the injury to the head is, 125 grand. Half, 500 dinars. Okay. So technically, you could actually make a ton of money. If you stayed alive, but you lost each of these limbs, okay? Like a tooth is 5% of your body, value of 5% of your body. There's a whole list set down by the Prophet ﷺ so that we could know how to sue. Because if lawsuits go crazy, then insurance prices go crazy, medical insurance, then medical costs go crazy. So we have, and then for the organs, we make qiyas. The scholars do a qiyas on the organs. Because you can mess up someone's organ on the inside. So we have this. And just to give you an idea of, uh, of that little side point in Sharia. So that just to trigger your mind that what the value of an individual is. Uh, if you cause a woman to lose a baby. She's pregnant. And you cause a miscarriage at any point. It's 10% of the entire body. All right. 100 gold coins. And that's $25,000. right. Because... A thousand, ten percent of that is a hundred. Okay, and so if two hundred fifty thousand dollars is the value of a single body, uh, then the janine, janine, the the child in the womb is twenty five thousand dollars. So you, if you were to throw a brick at a woman and she has a miscarriage, you yell at her and stress her out that it can be proven that you're the cause of the miscarriage. You owe her twenty five grand. If she does it herself in the haram, aborts in the haram, she owes the poor 25 grand. Punishment, payment. You're going to pay for that. All right? All right. So now we talk about, we go back to Abdul Qadir al-Jailani's beginning that when he gave away the eight gold coins, the leader said, sat him down and basically was teaching him how to protect your money. And he then told him about his oath of honesty, and that leader of the chief of thieves slowly started to make tawbah. Because he said, here we are with white hair, and we're doing all these sins, yet Allah has elevated this young man. Okay. And it penetrated his heart. So when we talk about beginnings, usually the, it is said by Ibn Atta, whoever has a blazing beginning will have a luminous end. And he had a blazing beginning in that you know, it's not every day that you get uh, 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 stuck up, uh, stuck up like a, a stick up or a shakedown. It doesn't happen every day. It does not happen every day that you see the head of a chief of a gang make toba. 
Now, when Abdul Qadir Jilani arrived, it seemed to be almost like a type of. Uh, it seemed to be like a type of coincidence, or something that Allah has replaced one person with another. How? The year that Abdul Qadir Jilani arrived in Baghdad was this just months before that. Abu Hamad al-Ghazali had left Baghdad. Abu Hamad al-Ghazali left Baghdad to go on his journey. Abu Hamad al-Ghazali had refuted every un-Islamic theology out there. He had written the greatest book on usul. Up to that time was considered the best book, and it's still studied until today, Al-Mustasfa. He had destroyed the Baltini Ismailis, and he was called Hujjat al-Islam. That was his nickname. Any heresy against Ahl-Sunnah that existed, he smashed it. Theology. And he felt that there was still a hole in his heart. After all this time, he felt my iman is not close to the iman that I see some people at. Yes, I have the words, I have the books, I have the arguments. But my heart's empty. Why? Because all he spent his entire time on academics of Islam, the academics of the deen. And there was no tradition of ibadah, besides the fard and some basic sunan. There was no zuhud, there's no ibadah that he was doing. So he felt he entered into it, he actually entered into a depression. And he later described, he said that when I entered into this, when a person enters into a depression, the doctors will say it's because your body. Uh, uh, has an imbalance in its humors. As the ancient medicine, we used to also all, always go by humors. There are four humors. Okay, the, I think it's like the black bile, the yellow bile, the blood, and something else, right? But there are these humors, and they say if they're off, it me- messes you up. He says the astrologers will tell you because of the alignment of the stars, right? So you're attracting a magnetism that made you depressed. He said, but the theologians say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has caused you to feel this way so that you could do something. Make a change. He, for six months, he, was, he never left his house. And he didn't speak to anybody. And after six months, he announced to his family, I'm leaving for good. I have to go discover, I have to discover myself, I have to discover the truth of this deen. And it's also said that it was triggered by a woman he saw that was so fervent in prayer. An old woman crossing the street, so fervent in her prayer and remembrance of Allah. While I walk on the street, he said, by Allah, I don't have a tenth of the iman that she has. And I have all the words and all the books. So he knew something is wrong. Imam al-Ghazali went then on ten, a ten-year sojourn, incognito, no sheikh's clothing, just the common clothing and a cap. And he went in and he earned himself by applying to jobs to be mosque groundskeepers. So he was a groundskeeper of the mosques. So he would go, he went up to Philistine, for example, in Jerusalem. And he was the groundskeeper and the custodian of different mosques. And in his spare time, he would go around the halakas in that city and discover all the shiuch of that city. And he sat with other philosophers, other scholars of law, and he sat with the worshippers and the people of Ibad and Dhikr. 
until he finally found and he realized that what he was missing was this tradition of ibadah and dhikr. And so he started following up and learning their knowledge and doing ibadah with them, them not knowing he's, he's Abu Hamd al-Ghazali. And one of the hardest things, I think it's in his biography, was that, if I'm not mistaken, he meant, he's mentioned that him seeing other imams teaching his books, right? And making mistakes, and he can't say anything. I mean, that would drive you crazy, right? And he would see people talking about him, in good, bad, and otherwise, and he had to stay silent. So that's what Ghazali did for 10 years. That first year was that he left, that was the year Abdul Qadr al-Jailani came in. Abdul Qadr al-Jailani was very different than Abu Hamd al-Ghazali. He was the polar opposite, you could say. From the get-go, the, the crux of his life was al-Zuhd wal-Ibadah. But he betrayed it, he, he strengthened it with fiqh. And in hadith and fiqh, he was a Hanbali. He was, he attained such great knowledge in Hanbali fiqh that the great, the greatest Hanbali scholar is considered Ibn Qudama. Later in life, Abdul Qadr, Abdul Qadr Jilani would end up to spend 73 years in Baghdad. He is like a staple, a pillar of Baghdad. You cannot mention Baghdad without mentioning Abdul Qadr Jilani. That's what he became. Abdul uh, 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 Ibn Qudama, the author of Al-Mughni, was the disciple, a student in fiqh of Abdul Qadir Jailani. And he would say that Abdul Qadir Jailani, he had his circles of tasawwuf and zuhd and ibadah, and I would wait until he was done with that. Then I would come take fiqh lessons with him. Like Ibn Qudama, he's, he's telling you the truth. He's saying, I was really interested in that zuhd and that ibadah and that dhikr and that, those things. I would just wait, wait, wait. When he's done with that, then I go study the fiqh from him. So he became an authority in fiqh. Okay. And he authored books of tafsir. And his sheikh was a dabbas. All right. Hamad ibn Muslim at dabbas was the sheikh that he studied with. And the Hanbali school at that time, people would endow these schools. So the idea that the Madaris and the Masajid were two different institutions is an ancient idea. All right? So Madaris, the schools, were usually there was a sponsor, one or two or three financial sponsors, and what they would do is they would sponsor apartments or something, and the rent would go to support that school. A waqf. And every Madrasa had a sheikh, just as we read that in the past. We just read the biography of Nizamuddin Awliya, that sponsors put him up and they put up his school. And he was the sheikh of the school. And it would run the way he wants it to run. The way that Nizamuddin Awliya ran it was that it was a high emphasis on awrad and it'am ta'am, feeding the poor and awrad. Abdul Qadr al Jailani had a slightly different way that he ran his school. There was a great emphasis on public preaching in his madrasa itself. And the, the, the way that these madaris worked is that the, the first part of it was public. Like anyone would come and pray. Okay. And then there was a set, there, he would hold his public sessions there. And there were rooms all around for classes, different classes, a kitchen, bathroom, etc. 
and then rooms upstairs all around for people to, to live in. Even the shiuch, some of the shiuch lived in it. Okay. Dar Mustafa in Yemen is quite similar to that. I went to a school in Morocco, which was essentially like a rundown building that was just abandoned. But they revived it, the, the Kingdom of Morocco, in uh, alliance with Zaytuna Institute way back in 1998. They revived it for use for a summer. And we got to live there. It's a gorgeous building. You walk in, it's a big rectangle. There are rooms all around the edges and all around the top balcony looking in. And there's a main central rectangular area that is open all the way up. And even the roof is not even a full roof. It's like slanted. So it, there's a little bit of air that could come in. So that, that area is an open space area. The second floor is a courtyard, uh, uh, balconies. They, they overlook that area. And it's all rooms. There's bathroom upstairs and downstairs. There's a kitchen. And it's all different rooms. So that's what these zawaya look like. So the sheikh runs his operation out of there. Now, what, is he do, don't, do, what he, he does not do, he doesn't do Jum'ah there. He doesn't do Eid there. Those things are for the masjid. So you have to understand these two institutions that always exist. But what he did was he, he taught, and he has shiuch that also te- teach with him, but he's the main sheikh. And what was unique about him versus the other ones was that he was a public preacher. And they had to continuously expand his madrasa and expand it because his public sessions would just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And they had to constantly expand the building. Now, before it ever became his, though, it was the previous Hanbali scholar who was his sheikh. And that sheikh was Hamad al-Dabbas. Now, Hamad al-Dabbas and the other sheikh uh, was, uh, I forgot, I lost his name here, Abu Sa'id al-Makhrami. Okay. Both of them were his shiuch. Hamad al-Dabbas was his first sheikh. And Hamad al-Dabbas, he used to be really hard on Abdul Qadir al-Jailani in front of everybody. One of the things he would do is that when they would have something, okay, like a gathering, and everyone would come sit up, he would shoo him off to the back when he was young. He would go sit in the back. When there was a heavy burden to be done, taken care of, he would have Abdul Qadr al-Jailani do it. He was extremely tough on him. When Abdul Qadr al-Jailani would make one mistake, he would fry him top to bottom. Okay? And one day, when one of the students laughed and pitched in, what the sheikh was saying, the sheikh became infuriated. He's saying, I do this for a reason of tarbiyah. It's not for you to pitch into this. And if I was to do one-tenth of what I do to him, to any of you, you'd leave this majlis. But I know he can handle it. Hamad al-Dabbas put so much pressure on him in front of everybody so that they know that when the announcement is going to be made that he's the inheritor of the school, Nobody should envy him, right? Because no one received the harsh and difficult tarbiyah upon him that he received. Now, before Abdul Qadir al-Jailani ever took the mantle of the Hanbali school and this Zawiyah, he went on to something that would be basically what he is most famous for, 
He has the most legendary khalwa of all people. His khalwa was legendary. Now, Abdul Qadir al-Jailani is described as being short, okay, but strong. He could withstand a lot. He was short and thin, but he had a sturdy body, even though he was not like a sickly type of person. From the people who are short are da- the Prophet Dawood, the Sahabi Sayyidina Ali bin Abi Talib, and the great Wali Abdul Qadr al-Jainani. Can you get a stronger, more powerful group than them? Right? Like if that's your team, subhanAllah. From the people who are tall are Musa, Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam, Umar ibn al-Khattab, and Malik ibn Anas, Imam Malik. These were the tall they they all sim- they had similar to Sayyidina Sulaiman also. Sayyidina Sulaiman was tall. Okay. But m- m- the personalities were the same. Musa alayhi salam, no nonsense. The law is the law. Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab is on the heart of Sayyidina Musa. Imam Malik is on the heart of Umar ibn Khattab. These three are all similar in the same hearts. Ka- Likewise, Sayyidina Dawood, Sayyidina Ali, Sayyidina Abdul Qadr al-Jailani. The three of them are no nonsense, but their their fuel, their core is spirituality. And their outward is no nonsense. I mean, they fought. They were fighters. All of them. Doesn't have to be physical fighters. Sayyidina Dawood was, Sayyidina Ali was. Now, Abdul Qadr al-Jailani, he was not soft. Okay? In the deen. He was soft as a person. All of them say Nadi extremely soft on the person, but in the deen he wasn't soft. With the enemies of Islam, he wasn't soft. But as a person, Abdul Qadir al-Jailani was extremely soft. Anybody who came with an excuse, he accepted it. Anyone who came with a need, he accepted it. Okay? Like he was extremely soft. He, he vowed not to marry ever. Until it was brought to his attention that he's missing out on a sunnah. Then he married four. He married four women, and from them were some women were from the elites. And as a result, he, his family was wealthy. Okay. He himself lived off the stipend of the Hanbali Madrasa. They have a stipend for the Sheikh. That's what he lived off. But he married wealthy wives, wives that had properties that had in, either inherited or made money. So he had wealthy wives, and those homes attached to the Zawiya were big. And there was a lot of wealth. But he himself had a regular stipend that he lived on. But back to his, his, um, his khalwa. What was his khalwa? When he finished his primary education and his, his, his secondary education in fiqh, primary, I mean the main education in aqidah, in fiqh, in hadith, in Qur'an, he memorized the Qur'an. He did what any hanbali at that time would have done. His sheikh then sent him off for ibad. Right, khalwa. And his khalwa was not like in an apartment. What does khalwa mean? Khalwa means a time where you come to, to, to draw very close to Allah Ta'ala by tabattul. A tabattul is cutting off distractions. Surat al-Muzzammin. And he cuts off all distractions. In Syria, they still do this, but in Syria, it's one weekend, right? Back in Sham, the scholar Abdurrahman al-Shaghuri, he gave khalwa to many people, and the khalwa for them, 
that they had an apartment up, stocked with food and everything, and you would go up to that apartment, they'd give you the key, and you would cut off from everybody, and you would just do dhikr for, for 48 hours straight. And tahajjud, and if you can fast possible or eat less possible, okay, whatever you could do. And that's what they would do there. Right? And the sheikh would come in and talk to them and see how they were progressing. Some, before that, it was 40 days and 40 nights. Like what? In the old days, you had a masjid in, the masjid of Abdul Qadr al-Jalani is still in Baghdad. And in that room, and all, a lot of the Ottoman mosques, you'll notice inside the masjid, there are these rooms. It's a little room, that's all it is. Right outside, right at the door uh, uh, around the masjid. That was a khalwa room. People would go in, like rent it basically. The key would be unlocked for them. They would only come out for the five prayers and go back and do it. This is called it. This is what tabatul cut off all distractions. Today, if you do that for an hour, you get a nervous breakdown. Right? I'm telling you honestly, most people can't. I'm not even going to tell you do a bad. Just shut your phone off, right? You'd be like immediately. Like, you, so, oh, you, your mind will convince you the world is ending if I don't check my phone. And I guarantee you the thoughts. What if my mom just had a heart attack? What, what if my kid fell and drowned and got hit by a truck? What, what if my wife is texting me and she's going to get upset and she's going to divorce me? I tell you, your mind will race. Okay? So just tell people, hey, I'm, I'm out of service for the next until 5. Hit me up at 5 o'clock. Right? If you need me, call me at 5. Call me at whatever. And these days of Arafah are, uh, are days of renewal. Tabattul is something called upon. I guarantee you people do it for an hour, see what happens to your life. Just cutting off and letting all your thoughts settle for, for, for first. Because when you shut stuff off, the, st- the thoughts are still here. It's going to take an hour or two for everything to settle. And it take you another hour or two for you to really get into ibad. And, by, and, and, and one of the weaknesses that we have that we have to address is people don't have the stamina to do ibad anymore. So what, when we wonder why our iman is weak, simple analogy. If a guy wants to get physically fit and that guy gets on the treadmill, you tell me you get tired after 30 minutes on the treadmill? We got work to do. 30 minutes today, 35 tomorrow, 40 the day after, 45 until you hit three, four hours. All the physically fit people, that's what they do. All the uh, 1,600 on their SATs, how long do they study? Three, four hours. That's the session is three, four hours. Right? Three is good, four is great. Anything less than that, it's amateurish. Go ask the Hindu kids and the Chinese kids what grades they're getting. Habib, who did you hang out with in school? Did you hang out with those Chinese kids, Hindu kids? Yeah. Right? Got the best grades. They got the best. Coming to the mic. Uh, you hung out with those kids? How long do they study? What's their study session like? Five, six hours. Five, six hours. Insane. You would do that? Hmm? Did you ever study that? No, I couldn't keep up. Yeah, like five, six minutes. Take a break. 15-minute break, right? (laughs) Tap out. 20 minutes. This is child abuse. A kid sits down. One of our kids, because we're soft, right? Sits one hour, two hours. Oh, this is child abuse, right? I need a break. No, we need to build up stamina. And I tried it one time. I read a book. I got this book. I saw the people talking about it in the news. So I said, let me buy this book. I bought it used for like seven cents yeah, from Amazon. And I read the book cover to cover. 
And it's all about a Chinese mom and her study sessions for her kids. They never decrease from four hours. Like four hours is your, your bill. That's why the kids get 100, 100, 100, 100. Everything is hundreds, right? So I started, I did that myself with, with one of my kids. He got 100. It's, it's a law that Allah created. You put in the asbab, you get a result. Alhamdulillah that Allah created laws of, of nature in this manner that we could just connect one to the other. So stamina in ibadah is something that we have to build up. Okay? We have to build it up. We have great stamina in watching movies. We have great stamina in eating food. Great stamina in sleeping. But no stamina in what benefits us. So, Abdul Qad, this is what the idea of khalwa is. Our khalwa is going to be one hour, two hours. Okay? Phone off and dedicate yourself. Right? And I guarantee you, you're going to get other shaitanic thoughts. Oh, the Europeans have advanced and the Americans advanced because they work. And what are you doing? Doing ibadah. Say, wait a second. Why are you bringing that analogy to me here? You never bring me that analogy when I'm watching TV. You never bring me that analogy when I'm scrolling. You never bring me that analogy when I'm watching a movie, right? Well, no, when you're watching a movie, you say, oh, the importance of relaxation, uh, work-life balance, right? You justify that. But when it comes to ibadah, you get these analogies. Oh, but Quran says work. Prophet said work. So you're bringing the analogies and the arguments in the wrong time in the wrong place. Okay, so just be careful. All these things are going to come up. It's all from Iblis. Okay, and also for the people around you who are influenced by Iblis. Next thing is that Abdul Qadr Jailani's Khalwa. People say it was four years. Some people say it was 25 years. I've seen it, both statements. Okay. It was legendary. In which he would do a khitam of the Qur'an entirely starting after Fajr. And he would end it around before the end of Asr. His khitam of Qur'an would be finished. Now, didn't the Prophet say, do not recite the Qur'an in less than three days? That's if you're unable to focus. If someone's rushing. But if you're able to focus on it, and what's the proof? Sayyidina Uthman used to do a khitam once a day. Who else? Sayyidina Abu Hanifa. Khitam al-Qur'an once a day. Sayyidina Uthman in Witr. Someone said that Sayyidina Uthman is busy with the Khilafah every day. Where is his ibadah? He's not a zahid. He's not a abid. They said, go to the masjid after Isha. Okay. And uh, 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 wait in the corner and see what happens. So after Isha, he went and he waited. He hid himself in the corner so nobody would see him. It was dark. He waited, waited, waited. After the whole masjid was empty, he saw Sayyidina Uthman come out, go into the corner of the mosque and open his witr with Alif Lam Mim and he didn't finish it until Surah Al-Nas entire khitam in Witr alright Witr is one raka'ah which is a sunnah mu'akkada if you leave it off for no purpose it's considered like a defect and aib in your deen that's Witr in the Hanafi madhab if you leave Witr which is three raka'ahs you're sinful okay. so Abdul Qadr al-Jailani's khalwa was legendary and he came back to Baghdad and nobody knew who he was except the few tulab al-ilm. He went back to his school and he was granted the official certificate that, okay, he is now the sheikh of the school and he runs the school and he started preaching. Little by little by little by little, all right, his preaching sessions would just grow and grow and grow. 
So you see how each sheikh has a different angle. So Nizamuddin Awliya, we never mentioned that he preached, right? He would, t- he would do ibadah and dhikr and salah and tahajjud mainly, and he would teach the murids and he would feed the poor. With Abdul Qadir al Jailani, it wasn't a soup kitchen, there was emphasis that he would feed them. He had a great emphasis on filling the stomach of the impoverished. But his main unique feature was his massive preaching sessions. And all, a lot of the books that are attributed to him are students who wrote down his preaching sessions. And it's narrated from many scholars that Izz ibn Abd al-Salam, Izz ibn Abd al-Salam, and Ibn Taymiyyah, who attributes himself to Abdul Qadir al-Jailani. Between Ibn Taymiyyah and Abdul Qadir al-Jailani are three people, and that's in, the, in Abdul, Ibn Taymiyyah's Book of Fatawa, Volume 10, Chapter on Tasawwuf. He attributes himself, he says, We are Qadiriyyah, we are Hanabila al-Qadiriyyah, and he lists a senate back to Abdul Qadir al-Jailani. Okay? And they say about him, he had many karamat. His greatest of all karamat was his ability to give hope to the hearts of the downtrodden. He gave them hope in Allah. He gave them hope in dua. Right? He lifted the hearts of the people. That's one of, that is his greatest karam. He had about thousands of Jews and Christians would start to attend these gatherings. And over the years, thousands entered Islam. So he was in dawah too. His Baghdad, you think of Baghdad, it's all Muslim, right? But back then it wasn't. Right? It took a while for it to become majority Muslim. There are still Christians today in Baghdad. Christians and Jews entered Islam with Abdul Qadir al-Jailani. And of, of his physical karamat, there is a story of his physical karamat in which he, 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 he always followed the sunnah of accepting invitations. Well, one day he got challenged. A challenge came up to him. One murid invited him. Unbeknownst to that murid, to another murid, of that invitation, he invited him. So they didn't know about each invitation, so this was a test. And Abdul Qadir al-Jailani accepted the test. He accepted both invitations. And both dinners were at the same time. So what did he do? We have a very similar story to Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak. If you remember, Abdullah ibn, and, and that's the same explanation. Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak is documented that he gave away his hajj money to a poor woman that he saw. He said, I've made hajj. She's in need of the money. I'll give her the money. That was the night before they're all the caravan leaves. So he spent the whole day in his home ashamed, embarrassed that he's not going for hajj and dejected. And the entire month or two months, whatever it takes for people to make hajj, it passed and they came back. And when he came back, when the people came back from hajj, they saw Abdullah ibn Mubarak in the masjid in the marketplace. Every time he would see someone, they would, he would welcome them back from hajj and they would say, thank you so much for everything you did for us. And he would be, what? He said, thank you, all the durus you gave us and leading our hajj group. He became bewildered. Right? He went back and he told his wife, everyone is saying to me, thank you for coming and being with us for hajj. You saw I was here. Am I going crazy or are they crazy? So he asked Allah, oh Allah, show me what's happening. How is it they're all saying, thank you for coming, guiding us in hajj and for the classes, yet I know I was here. 
I never went to Hajj. That night he slept and he saw a brightly faced man and he said, who are you? He said, I am your Habib in this life and your Shafi'ah in the next life. Your messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. And he said, immediately he said, oh Master of Allah, what happened? How are the people telling me thank you for coming to Hajj and, and supporting us and guiding us when I was right here, I did not move from the city. The messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created an angel on your image to go to Hajj to guide the people and teach them of your words and your voice and your image. Okay? And Allah has accepted your Hajj for you. Okay? He's counted you that you did Hajj and all the people think you did Hajj too and you get the reward of teaching all those people too. Because of your sadaqah to that poor woman. Well, with Abdul Qadir Jilani, same karama happened. Had, didn't have to do with hajj, just the invitation. And then both murids came back the next day and said, guess what, I had uh, the sheikh with me for dinner. He said, wait, no, I had the sheikh with me for dinner. How did that work? It works because Allah Ta'ala creates a malak in his form. Okay. And ultimately we say Allah knows best, but this is what they report to us. And there's no reason just because something is sounds far off for us to reject it. With, with, with both this one and for Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak, it's a well-known karama that happened to them. Okay? With like transmissions and the work, not fairy tales and folk tales. So it's possible. If Allah wants something karama like that to happen, it happens. But uh, Ibn Taymiyyah here is quoted. Likewise, Izz ibn Abdus Salam, his greatest karama was his alteration of people's hearts, his sermons, his talks, his speeches. Okay. They altered everybody. Kings, chiefs, the wealthy, ministers, military leaders would all be affected by his words. Criminals would repent. So he was known for this. His dawah work was extremely important. All right. In his fiqh, he was respected. And he relied upon the Hanbali and in some cases Shafi'i fiqh. Hanbali and Shafi'i fiqh are very close because in their usul, they rely, they, they accept the Ahad Hadith as law. Okay, whereas the Hanafi and Maliki fiqh, they use something greater. They have a source that's greater than an Ahad, solitary chained Hadith. So that's why Hanbali and Shafi fiqh can overlap in a lot of things. He talks about how does a person, this is, this is one of the most important teachings that he has. How does a person come to know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? This is so important, you have to pay attention to this. Like, how does a person go from a regular guy to somebody who is what we call arif billah? That means extremely near to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he said, this is the formula. He says that a person finds himself in trouble. And he starts to try to get rid of his trouble, like we, we would all do. right? I'm in a jam, I'm trying to, to, to get out of my jam. He, sa- he says, but he fails. When he fails, he turns to the other creations. This is the natural status of human beings. Okay, I, I'm in trouble. I try to fix it. I can't fix it. What do I do? I start calling my friends. He says he starts to go to his friends. Then he starts to go to the officials. Then the rich. Then uh, the, uh, the, the people who can help him. In case of illness, he goes to the doctors. If the doctors fails, he goes to the people with herbs. All that stuff, right? As we all do. He said, then Allah causes that to fail too. That doesn't work. When that doesn't work, 
What does he do? He goes to the religious people. He says, teach me how to make dua. How can I call upon Allah? And he starts to say the invocations and the praises of Allah, and he starts to praise Allah, hoping that Allah will change the situation. And he gets engrossed in that world. Okay? And the problem doesn't leave. But he gets more and more engrossed in the world of prayer and the world of dua until he finds such an intimacy in that world that leads him to eventually submit his entire affair to Allah. He realizes that the adab when dealing with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is submit the affair to him. And he submits himself completely to Allah. Allah will not change you until you submit yourself completely to Allah. And you are as if you're a corpse in the hands of someone dead, uh, 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 of, the, of the washers of the corpse. Or as if you are a ball in the, in the hands of a child. You're completely submitted. Fueled by the sweetness of this dua. You find a sweetness to the dua. And you're inspired to completely submit yourself. He said, once you submit yourself, now Allah Ta'ala works on you. Okay? He works on you. He ca- How do you become a wali? You can't. But you can let Allah make you a wali. You can't go and make yourself wali of Allah and Arif Billah but you can let Allah do it for you how? you have to be submitted you have to be near to him you can't be resisting and so you're in a state of complete submission just as he says here as a corpse in the hands of those who bathe it and how are you in that state? in your dhikr sessions in your ibadah sessions that you are like a corpse in the hand of the one who bathes it and washes the corpse okay he says, in that, he is immersed in the remembrance of Allah. The remembrance of Allah will work on him and change him and transform him. He will come out at the other end of this, a completely different person. He said, this is the path by which a regular man becomes a'arif billah. Okay? So, he also talked about the importance okay, of uplifting other people. The greatest of uplifting is to feed the stomach of the hungry. All right, that's the greatest way to uplift somebody. Okay. Once he becomes oblivious to himself, he now views other cre- creatures as the creation of Allah. So I don't view you anymore. This is how this is the mentality now. So when I come when I'm immersed, when I come out of that and I come into the world and I start dealing with people, you're now supposed to have a different view towards people. Your view towards people should now, not that you're Mr. Smith, you're Mrs. Jackson, you're Abdullah, you're Samih. No. You're Allah's creation. He's Allah's creation. She's Allah's creation. I can win the love of Allah the way I treat, by the way I treat you. And by my emotions towards you. By having some compassion towards you. By having some hope of good towards you. All right? By stopping you from harming yourself even. I can gain the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by loving you or by being compassionate to you or generous to you or whatever the sharia requires. Okay, So he says here now, his interaction with people becomes interaction with Allah. I'm not interacting. I don't even believe that you're some autonomous creature. You're the creature of Allah. Allah put you in my life for a reason. This is also wahdat al-shuhud. People asked about wahdat al-wujud. We don't really call that doctrine because that's a confusing term. We say wahdat al-shuhud. This is what the ulama have said. His wahdat al-wujud makes it sound like all of existence is one thing. It's not. Wahdat al-shuhud. 
testimony, uh, uh, my, my witness of things is one. I only witness you to be a creation of Allah. I witness you. My witness of you is that Allah put you in my life for a reason. My interaction with you is really my interaction with, with Allah in a sense because I view you as his creation. Okay. 73 years he preached in Baghdad and he was a pillar of Baghdad and at that time the Seljuks were overtaking the Abbasids okay. and the Seljuk Sultan gained victory over the Khalifa Al-Mustarshid okay. at that time and the people dismantled the pulpits of the mosques and they stopped going to the prayers and women came out crying for the Khalifa and the people in other parts of the country followed suit. Right. And the Khalifa was assassinated by the Ismaili Shia. Now the Ismaili Shia at that time were what we call today the Bahoris. Ismailis are two types, Nizaris and Bahoris. The chain of transmission from the Ismaili times, the Batini times, the Fatimids, all the same. Batani, Fatimids, Ismailis, same thing. These people who caused a lot of trouble in the time of Abu Hamd al-Ghazali, their lineage today is what we call Bahori Ismailis. They still pray, they fast, they try to do da'wah, they study, etc. But they're Shia. And they have Kufri beliefs. The Nizari Ismailis, they broke from that and they followed another imam, and a series of imams, and they believe that the imam has the right to abrogate the sharia, and they don't pray, and they don't fast, and they don't make hajj. Hajj is to the imam, not to the Kaaba. And you pay 12.5% of your income to the imam. Great religion, right? If you're the imam, not if you're the followers. That's Nizari Ismailism. They don't even pray. I mean, so it's so far out in left field, okay? And so the Bahori Ismailis are the, today, you'll see them, they have usually big beards, they wear a gold strip around their white, they wear a white kufi and a gold strip around the white kufi. And the women wear like, a, not to make fun, to be honest with you, but it's like a kindergarten type of hijab. It's like a, uh, like we usually a little girl, six years old, coming to hips class for the first time. And her mom puts on a hijab. It's like a one piece. And it goes down and it has like loops and flowers. You'll see them walking around in the marketplace. And they're all Indians, by the way. Okay. Um, the original Fatimis and Ismailis were Arabs, right? But now they're all Indians. They were, they were North Africans and Arabs. But now all Shias pretty much mostly are non-Arabs, except for some Lebanese. But they wear this. Um, it's, it's really, it feels like a kindergarten dress and a kindergarten hijab. So if you see that, you know that that's a Bahori. Those are the descendants of the Fatimids and the Ismailis. Those were the ones causing trouble at the time of Abdul Qadr al-Jailani. And he was a witness to all of this drama. Okay. All right. And they were, the fuel of a lot of his preaching was because of this great fitna that happened in, in his time. His sermons are created, are, 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 are um, gathered in a book called Futuh al-Ghayb, Revelations of the Unseen, and also the book called Al-Fatih al-Rabbani, right? and another book called Sirrul Asrar, Secrets of the Secrets. 
the lordly revelations or godly revelations and the revelations of the unseen. The, the theme of all this is recognition of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by gratitude and sincerity. And if you think that it, when you read these things, your skin will crawl because he's going on the attack. You're a munafiq. You claim to love Allah. You're a munafiq. Maybe he was talking. Maybe there were people in the audience that made him go like that, right? But and as a book form, you, you might open up one of these books. And, Whoa, what did I do? Right? Hey, I'm just trying to be a regular Muslim guy. Maybe that's why speeches are not like books. These are, you have to understand they are speeches. Okay? So he may be talking to people and he's pointing to people in the audience. So just to give you a context of how to read these books without feeling, you know what? Man, I try to get some inspiration. Now I feel like I'm terrible now, right? And so you don't feel like that. All right. Now, secondly, it is good for us to accuse our nafs. So we should allow for that accusation of the nafs. So if I tell you, you're munafiq, you should accept it. You probably are. If not munafiq of belief, munafiq of action. Well, so there's absolutely nothing that you say except you do it? Is there anything that you do and tell people not to do it? Of course, there's something that we're munafiq about. Munafiq of hypocrite of actions not necessarily hypocrites of belief. Inshallah, none of us are hypocrites of belief. We can say we are believing in, in this deen and this aqidah, but it, that's, so there's the hypocrisy of belief and the hypocrisy of action. And we, should, we could all accuse ourselves of the hypocrisy of action, and we should fear as well the hypocrisy of belief. He talked about the issues of the day. He did not ex- ignore the maladies of people and the issues that people had today. All right? And he spoke, when he spoke about Allah, one of his examples is the following. The entire creation is like a man who's been imprisoned and chained by a king, whose dominions are vast and his countenance awesome. The prisoner is uh, chained to a pine tree, beneath which there is a river, wide and deep. The king is seated and elevated on a chair, with arrows and bows, javelins and spears next to him. And he strikes the captive with the weapon whenever he wants now would it be prudent for anyone witnessing the scene to divert his attention from the king and expect harm or favor from the captive instead of the king like if you're witnessing this who would you expect who do you think is in charge here the king or the captive obviously the king all right if now someone goes to the captive for help isn't he a fool so likewise, the king is in complete control and his weapons are his aqdar, what he has willed for this captive. And the captive can only move as far as the chains are, are, are long. Okay? So we seek, oh Allah, we seek your refuge from our, the blindness of our inner eye of seeking help from the creation and not from the creator. Okay? He says, furthermore, keep your eyes fixed on your creator. For his gaze is fixed on you. Right? We have Kiram and Katibin writing all of our deeds. His gaze is fixed on us. So if the king is looking at you, how could you turn your eye and your, your inner eye away from anybody else? He says the inner eye is all that's important. They came to him one time and they said, Abdul Qadr, there is some bad news. He said, what is the news? He said, your son who had went off on business and trade, he was killed. 
and the journey. And he's not coming back. So he waited, waited, waited. And then he said, Alhamdulillah. A couple days later, they said, Abdul Qadir, it was false news. It wasn't him who was killed. It was somebody else who was killed. He finished his trade and he's coming back. He waited, waited, and he said, Alhamdulillah. So they said, explain to us your reactions. How could they be the same for both cases? He said, because when you bring such, ma- some, such news that would shake the heart of a person, I, had to, I waited and I aligned my heart with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and told myself, this is the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when my heart found sukoon with that, I said, alhamdulillah. Nothing is more important than your heart is always aligned with Allah. And when you brought me the good news, this was caused any person's heart also to fly and lose remembrance of Allah. So I checked myself and aligned my heart with the will of Allah and said, alhamdulillah. So in both cases. There's another story of a man who, uh, one of the early people of, of this path, that he would get caught making istighfar and dua for the people of Baghdad, the merchants of Baghdad. And when they asked him, why are you doing this? He said, I've been doing this for 30 years. He said, what are you seeking forgiveness from? He said, I'm seeking forgiveness from one utterance that I said. They said, well, what was that utterance? He said, alhamdulillah. He said, how does it make sense that you're seeking forgiveness for 30 years for saying alhamdulillah? He says, because a man came one time to the masjid and announced to everybody, all the homes of a certain area, the merchant's quarters, have been burned by a fire except for your home, your home, and your home. And they pointed to me that my home wasn't burned. I said, Alhamdulillah. Then I realized, I'm thanking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala while all my brothers are suffering. And realized this is putting myself in front of everybody else. And the ibad of Allah is not the adab that Allah wants. So I seek refuge from that moment. I seek forgiveness for that moment. This is what they mean by aligning your heart with Allah first. It's amazing subtleties of these ulama. Keep yourself, he says, before the one who keeps himself before you. Is not Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala causing your heart to beat at every moment? So he is caring for you. So care for him. Keep your heart in love with the one who loves you. Didn't he invite you into creation? Is that not enough? A sign of his love for you? Did not he guide you to Islam? Is that not enough for his love for you? Seek help from him who can save you and take you out of darkness, the darkness of ignorance. He said, what is darkness? He said, darkness is ignorance. And knowledge is the light. Ask Allah to cleanse you from the impurities of your souls and redeem you from your baser self, which leads you to temptation, despair, and timidity, cowardliness, and iman. Your earthly desires are like foolish friends, so stay away from them. They keep you off the righteous path and busy you from that which is pleasing to your Lord and desirable and beneficial for you in this life and the next. How long would you remain slaves of your desires, temptations, greed, and pride? This transitory world is short. How long will you be, will you be forgetful of the hereafter? All right. And he has amazing, amazing lectures from the book Al-Fatih al-Rabbani. And they're just lectured no, lecture one, lecture two, lecture three. Sometimes they're the lectures of Ramadan, and he ultimately 
goes from topic to topic inside of it, but mostly revolving around the heart, sincerity towards Allah Ta'ala. He said, you always complain, as you would ever do, that you suffer losses, okay? And everything that you love, you lose. He said, the objects of your fancies are, may be harmful for you, okay? Your separation from it may be best for you. If it is wealth that you love, then you're eventually going to incur some losses. Should I tell you that Allah loves you and you, sh- you should be enraptured with Him, not turn to others? Have you not heard that, what, that Allah says, He who holds them dear and they Him, yuhibbuhum wa yuhibbuna. He talks a lot about the love of Allah. I created jinn and humankind only for ibadah. Are you not aware that the Prophet said, When Allah loves a abd, He places afflictions upon him. But if he puts up with it and endures, then Allah sets him apart for himself, which means Allah bestows upon him certain karamat, and the greatest of karamat, his dua is answered. Abdul Qadir Jilani said that his dua was answered. He was sari'u al-ijaba. Anytime he made a dua, sari'u al-ijaba. He was also sari'u al-dam'a. He would weep very quickly uh, for the, uh, when, when Allah was mentioned and zuhud was mentioned and the akhirah was mentioned. There's so much more we could talk about. Lastly, let's talk about his asceticism. Uh, when his gatherings became extremely vast and the kings would come, he stopped sitting in his majlis before the public gatherings and he would sit outside because in those times, if the sultan came, the khalifa entered and you didn't stand up for the sultan, it was considered disrespect. And he never wanted to stand up for the sultan. So what he would do is he would wait in a room outside the majlis. Like there would be a door, let's say a door back here. And he would look through. After the sultan came in and sat down, then he would come in. All right. So that he he doesn't want to disrespect the sultan and he doesn't want to stand for the sultan. As I said, his wives were very wealthy. He lived on a very simple stipend, but his wives would always get him gifts. And they got him one time one of the finest robes. They said, the kings now attend the emirs, the governors, the rich. They attend your circles. So they bought him a really fancy thobe. And he went out with that thobe. And then one time he came back in. He slept that night and he saw a vision. In which a voice said to him, Ya Abdul Qadir, those thobes are permissible for you to wear in front of the kings. But as soon as you come back, wear the thobe that I love, the thobe you used to wear in the khalwa. Right? So then he, would, he went out, uh, he went into his uh, belongings, and he dug out the thobe that he used to wear when he was on the khalwa, back in the time when it was, he was just alone with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He said, that thobe, you can wear that for the, for the people. Because if they need to see that on you, you can wear that. But when you come back, wear the thobe that you used to wear when you were on khalwa. Right? So he used to change and wear the clothes of the poor. Meanwhile, his home was filled with servants and whatever his wives brought because they were rich. He never established an official tariqah. Like there was no idea of tariqa qadiriya in his lifetime, but his sons established it by gathering his adhkar 
and the awrad that he would give to the students and the disciples. And he went to war, Abdul Qadir al-Jailani went to war with the false Sufiya at the time. And he would say that if a Sufi comes and uh, prays on water or flies in the air, we judge him by his sharia, not by his karamats. Okay, so he was very big on that and that none of this, none, we don't judge someone by karamat and karamat, the only karama that's important is istiqama. So he waged war on this concept. People think that false Sufis is a new thing. Oh, the Sufis of the past were good, but the Sufis of today are bad. There have always been bad ones. Have there always been false muftis? Haven't there always been muftis who give the fatawa that the sultans want? Right? Haven't there always been scholars who give you the fatwa, whatever the, the, the rich and the salatin want to, to, to say? It's always existed, right? It's not something new. Likewise, there's always been Sufiya who went so much into ibadah they went astray. And the karamat and the mukashafat got so much that fried their brains and led their brains astray. He fought that in his time. Abdul Qadr Jailani. The fighting of and the rectification, because when you go into a lot of ibadah and you spend time alone, a lot of amazing things are going to happen. You're going to have visions, you're going to have these things. That could lead you astray. And so, Al-Junaid al-Salik, Abdul Qadr al-Jailani, Abu Hamad al-Ghazali, all of these people came to set it straight. Things go astray, they set it straight. Okay. Tajdeed. So it's something that's, that's very commonplace. And it's not something that's... Um, it's just the Sufiya of today and yesterday and the century before were corrupt. No, it's always been corrupt. Right? There's always the corrupt and the good. Right? And so he was one of those who set them straight. All right, folks, let's uh, stop here. We can remind ourselves of our sponsors before we go to open QA after covering the life of Abdul Qadir al-Jailani. We're now going to go into QA related to Abdul Qadir, but if, it, if you have to go off the topic, that's fine. Uh, our... Uh, sponsors are Mecca Books. Our sponsors are Professors One to One, and our sponsors are yourselves. Patreon.com backslash Safina Society. You support us here on Patreon.com backslash Safina Society. We need. We could. We will always keep advancing this uh, this live stream and this podcast and everything. We want to keep it advancing. We want to keep it going. We want to keep it something that's permanent. And it's something that we do um, as a permanent regular thing. So be part of it by going to patreon.com backslash Safina Society. Yeah, Sharif, come take a seat. All right. Rehana, go get the batlawa. See if the batlawa is there. Go to the kitchen and get the Costco box. It has a batlawa. And where are my cookies? You got another order from Costco? No, we still have that one that we've been just down in these calories. Allah. Many people are fasting the fast of Dhul Hijjah. So, um, uh, uh, Uncle Kurek, didn't Abdul Qadir Jelani speak against Ash'aris? I've never seen such a comment against Ash'ar. No, I've never seen one. Let's I actually know that like um, a lot of people like uh, Wahhabi type of yeah. guys they actually use Abdul Qadir Jilani like very like for their for their views. So why don't they use him for his tasawwuf too? 
maybe their hearts would soften a little bit. I, I saw someone who was calling it Abdul Qadir Jili. Yeah, they said that's his real. It's Abdul Karim Al Jili is a different person. Whatever, it's just his 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 nisba. Nisba is just his location. Yeah. Whatever you want to call him. Okay. Um, let's see what he said. Okay. Yes, I had to put it right here. Thank you. Do you think you will ever visit Tarim again? Let's see. Right, can I go, go you in the way of the camera? So maybe he's he's just citing Hanbali fiqh, right? Or Hanbali aqidah. That's that's what I'm going to understand from it. All right, let's see what else, what other comments we got here. All right, Bismillah, YouTube. Dr. Shadi, what's the best English translation of Imam Ahmed's Kitab al Kitab al-what? Al-Zuhud. The Book of Asceticism. It's really the Asceticism by Imam Ahmed. So he was asking what's the best English translation. I've never seen one. I've never seen a translation. What's the current change to Sidi Abdul Qadir Jilani? There are a lot of Qadiriyah. There's a lot. And... The basis in Pakistan, really. The basis of the Qadiriyah, his his strong lineage moved from Baghdad to Pakistan, like last de- generation. Caitlin says, for regular Muslims like us, if we should try to do hours of khalwa, uh, I wouldn't try to do. You just do a little bit at a time, like thirty minutes, forty minutes, like an hour, an hour, yeah. two hours maximum, right? Until it becomes a norm for you. You recite some Quran. You do some dhikr of salah on the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. If you're tired, you do something simple. La ilaha illallah. And you um, make dua, etc. I remember one time I was at, when I was at the Baltimore for that conference. Yeah. Um, I was buying a ton of books. And the guy who was selling the books was like, what are you going to do with all these books? I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm going to go into Khadawa and read them all. He's like, who's your teacher? I was yeah. like, Dr. Shai. He's like, why did Dr. Shai teach you about going to Khadawa? <laughs> he's like roasting me. He's like, he says he's going to talk to you about it. Oh, my God. I mean, the, the, the thing is about books is that um, you, you, you don't have books so that you could read all of them at once. It's never going to happen. That's not what people do. You, you get books so you can have a library so that you can go to your library every day and say, oh, I never knew I had this book. Right? I never read this book. So you form and a library. like... Yesterday I was like, we were just talking yeah. about the uh, Hadith of Shafa'a, and I just tried to look it up. Like, it's so much easier just going to Qadi Yad Shifa, and and it's right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Instead of looking up, it's actually harder to look it up on Google. I couldn't oh, it find is. it. Totally is. Totally is. All right, what do we got here on YouTube? Yala Sharif, read me stuff. 
a few streams ago, I think I heard you say that someone you knew got very wealthy by constantly reciting Surah Muzammil. That's not the only reason he got wealthy. Okay. Is his mic on, by the way? Yes. That's not the only reason he, he got wealthy. He got wealthy because he was an IT guy. He worked really hard at IT. Huh? I had a roommate. He used to read Surah Al-Muzammil every day to get rich. I said, that's definitely one reason. That wasn't the only reason. Mm. The other reason is that he was an IT nerd, and they always have work. Yes. But he also married a man, married a woman. Mainly, one of the reasons was his dad, her dad was really wealthy, and he became like his, the assistant to the dad. And then he started, you know, uh, working, but also managing his businesses until they end up having like some massive, massive, you know, amounts of gas stations and other things that they owned and bought and, and, and worked at. So, Is there a specific word to, to be recited in these last, in these 10 days of Dhul Hijjah? What's that? Like a specific word to recite in these last... There's no specific ibad uh, of Dhul Hijjah except dhikr and dua. Did you see like a normal poster? What? Good. Can you send me a screenshot of that? Uh, just airdrop it to me. I don't think I have. I don't know how to do it. I got it. Uh, okay. Let's just text it and try to drop. Um, there is Qadriya in. There's Qadriya, by the way, in Gambia. There's Qadriya everywhere. Have you met any Tijaniya near Yeah. We have Tijaniya in Egypt too. There's Tijaniya in Sheikh Salah, his name is. His name is Sheikh Salah. Okay. All right, let's see what else. Read to me. Sharif, Iqra. Read so I can drink. Agwa. Uh, why is Sheikh Abdul Qadir known as Ghoth Al Azam? Why is Abdul Qadir Jalani known as Al Ghoth Al Azam? Why is he known by that? Because he was considered, you know, from his. his uh, Achievement in the field. That's why. If we've done Hajj, should we strive to do more and maybe help others financially do theirs? That would be amazing. If you did your Farid and other people can't fulfill their Farid, it would make sense to help those people. That's an Instagram question. Sheikh Harun actually posted a fatwa that for those that have done Hajj before because of the, the, how the system is kind of messed up now, that... That one hajj is you do it, then you send other people. Send other people to do the hajj. You're going to get a lot of reward for that. Now, someone may have done sins in the meantime, then he needs to do another hajj. But, um... All right, who else? Nimra says, there's Gambia. Yes, there is Gambia. Yes, there's Qadri and Gambia. Maham says, Hazrat Ryan. (laughs) Reading the dhikr. You don't drink water when you speak for hours in class where you're having bakalab. Yeah. <laughs> um, what else we got here? No juicy update on Muqawif today. Huh? 
No juicy update on Dawan Mutawif. The juicy update on Mutawif is that the Saudi ministry has issued a letter essentially saying we're getting involved. Wow. Yes, this, the ministry of Hajj from Saudi has essentially uh, issued a, a letter saying that, a public letter, that um, they're, they're getting hands-on involved right now. So they're trying to, they're, at least they recognize it, right? At least they have that, right? Why not just go back to the old system? I, I just don't. Man. I don't know. All right, let's stop here. Alhamdulillah that we had this hour or so to talk about Abdul Qadir Jailani. Is a question from Aida, is it valid if a country is celebrating Eid in a different day than Saudi? And usually that's odd for um, for the Hijjah because of the fact that Yom Arafah is a physical thing that's happening, yeah. right? But it is still valid. If there's a country that says that we only go by the local moon sighting, that's valid, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Um, of course, it feels odd. It seems odd, but um, there would it is valid. But Saudis said that they also witnessed the moon yesterday. Okay. Yeah, they they testified to that. So, what about um, locally in New Jersey, the brothers that toured? I don't know if Levon Brown saw made, made a moon sighting. Uh, found I don't know if I didn't hear I didn't keep up because once I heard that Saudi said, testified that they saw the moon, then like I don't consider them to be like liars about that stuff. Right. All right, folks. Let's stop here. Let's take one more question. Abdul Shakur, how can we keep the state of heart pure even though we are bombarded with many inappropriate things? It is a constant, nonstop remembrance. Cleaning out your thicker nonstop. Imagine you had a drip of soap and and a stream of water nonstop on your heart, nonstop. And that's why we want to be thakirin. Right, we want to just constantly be non-stop in the remembrance of Allah Taala, and it's a constant drip. Sometimes it's intense, but it's never off. Okay, and it's never off. It should never be off. There should never be um, a time where we become stagnant of the remembrance of Allah, even while driving, while working on the bus, all that, all these things. At any time, we should be under our breath. Should be mention of. Uh, of Allah's remembrance. Someone asked, where will the Sheikh be in the UK? Come again? Where will you be in the UK? If you're no, heading. No, no, okay. UK? Hmm. All right, folks. Jazakumullah uh, khairan. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruku natubu ilayk. Walasf inna al-insana lafi khusr. Illa al-ladhina amanu wa aminu salihat. Wa tawasub al-haq. And I just want to remind everyone before we leave is that tonight is Laylatul Jum'ah. It's also one of the ten nights of the Hijjah. So please uh, don't, for the sake of yourselves and our own benefit, not forget the, the value of the ibadah in this period of time and this evening and these days in general. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Muhammad. وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته
Kalbe shifa bera 